0: I think you wanted to hate this movie before you went
1: into it. They
0: fixed the Parsec problem, but they did it in a dumb way! Not only do I not think it's a good Star Wars
1: movie, I think it's also just a bad movie. Of course, I'm going to disagree with you on all of that. Let's the Finbar! Lend the hater, one who loves joy, and one like Vader, one loves pop culture, one thinks it's torture, they both think they're right, so let's hear them fight, reviewing movies, and what's on TV, Let's the fanboy, Lend the hater. Hey, I like that, it was pretty catchy. I hated it. The timing was off and it was out of tune. Welcome to Fanboy and the Hater, a podcast about the best and worst in movies, TV, and pop culture. Hosted and produced by Mike Hall and Jim Harris. Edited by Jim Harris. And music by Mike Hall. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to tonight's event. An epic battle over Solo! A STAR WARS STORY! Introducing first, a love-starved dork in desperate need of acceptance, the Force Fiasco, the plucky Padawan, Mike the Fanboy And his opponent, with four eyes and no brains, he is Darth Douchebag! The imperial imbecile, Jim, the hater, Harris. For the tens listening alone in their rooms, and the hundreds listening around the world, let's get ready to nerd fight. Welcome, on this episode of Fanboy and the Hater, we are going to talk about Solo, a Star Wars story. I came into this movie with low expectations. I was just hoping for something enjoyable that answered a lot of the questions that a lot of fans had. How did Han meet Chewbacca? How did uh, he meet Lando? How did he get the Millennium Falcon? What the fuck is a Kessel Run, and why is it measured in parsecs? I was really excited to see how they would do it and to see it on the big screen and see it all pieced together. I also came into this understanding that I don't think it would be possible to do this story in a way that's going to make all of the fans happy. And overall, I enjoyed it. My measurement of whether or not I like a movie is, am I angry at the end of it or am I smiling at the end of it? And I was smiling at the end of this one.
0: I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And oddly enough, for the first Star Wars movie that never included the famous line, I have a bad feeling about this. I have lots of bad feelings about this movie. When I first saw it in the theaters, as soon as the movie ended and the credits started to roll, I turned to the person I went to the movie with and I said, that wasn't bad, but it also wasn't good. And then, as we were talking about it, as we were leaving the theater, I started to drift more towards, I actually think that was bad. And then after repeated viewings of it, I really, really do not like this movie. Not only do I not think it's a good Star Wars movie, I think it's also just a bad movie. My hate is strong with this one.
1: Spoilers. Spoilers ahead. Spoilers. Spoilers ahead. Well, let's go through and have a discussion about it. So let's start with the, the first big scene, which is on Corellia. It starts with Han boosting a uh, speeder. Him and Kira are working for Lady Proxima. He is supposed to sell some coaxium and is double-crossed and beaten up. He steals some of that coaxium to, in order to sell it so he could buy the freedom for himself and Kira. They escape with it a little bit after some fighting and the chase scene. And then he barely escapes. She doesn't make it out, but he escapes by enlisting with the Empire as a pilot. What I really liked about this is I think it establishes, or at least begins to establish, that Han is a natural pilot by his ability to drive the speeders. It shows that he is a good guy that does bad things. I I like that they brought out a lot of new species. I I like how they keep expanding that, a lot of new species in the Star Wars universe. I liked how they showed Imperial rule searches and the arrests seemingly random arrests of families and anybody that possibly looked like they may not be doing what they're supposed to be doing, Order Through Fear. I like that the look of it is consistent with the look of the original three movies, That a lot of the same coloring, uh, although a little bit darker. Obviously, you disliked it.
0: I disliked the movie in part because its plot and its storytelling irritated me repeatedly. The opening wasn't terribly bad, this whole idea of on the mean streets, a young man fights for survival but yearns for fly among the stars. I would think that it was okay up until the part where as they're going to Cornet Spaceport, they're talking about getting away from Lady Proxima in order to not have to follow orders anymore, not to be kicked around anymore. And then after Han gets out of the control zone and into the spaceport, Bakira gets grabbed, but then he turns around and he joins the Empire. So someone who doesn't want to follow orders and be told what to do, joins the military. Left with very little choice at that time. But to me, it was kind of dumb that that was his plan. It's like, I'm going to join the Empire, become a pilot, get a ship, and come back to Corellia to save my girlfriend.
1: I don't think that was necessarily bad. As he's going through the spaceport, he's looking around, and everybody that looked even remotely like him was being arrested and taken away. And I think he saw that as his only way of getting off the planet. I think he had planned on trying to get away from the Empire as soon as he could, but that was his only way of getting off that planet. I think he figured by becoming a pilot with the Empire, that's a little more freedom than just running cons and scams for Lady Proxima.
0: He traded one Overlord for another. He got away from Lady Proxima, but then he's now tied to the Empire. The main thing that bothered me most probably about that was, again, the very next thing happens is the will fade to black three years later, and now he's fighting in the infantry. So it makes not only what did he opt for that to get off of a planet, but he stayed in the military for three years. And as it's slightly alluded to in the next section, he was in flight school and got some combat flight training, but got kicked out of the academy because oh my god big surprise he couldn't follow orders so like again that doesn't make sense why didn't he try to run away or desert the imperial infantry sooner than what we see in the movie again that's where the plot started to drift into the movie is very fast moving going from scene to scene and at times i think it's intentionally fast paced so you don't stop and think this doesn't really make sense
1: well let's take a look at that scene Three years later, Han is in the infantry during a a battle on the planet of Mimban. Star Wars
0: nerd naming all the planets.
1: (laughs) But Beckett and his crew are posing as Imperial troops. He tries to join their group and desert the Empire. Beckett hands Han over to the Empire as a deserter. Han's thrown into a pit with Chewbacca. Han speaks Wookiee to Chewbacca and they plan an escape. They escape with Beckett's group. So you saw it as a flaw that it took him three years to even try to escape the Empire. But I'm looking at it going, well, the Empire runs a pretty tight ship. He probably didn't have a whole lot of opportunity to run away. And he immediately jumped on it, and he risked everything to get out of the Empire to join Beckett's crew.
0: Han's commanding officer like gets killed almost immediately, which is why he initially starts to follow Beckett, who's impersonating an Imperial captain. But it's filmed in such a silly way that he becomes... Ooh, in, oh, look, Beckett can twirl his guns around like Han does in the other movies. Ooh, that guy's so cool. I'm going to run after him. And oh, he's a criminal. OK, I can be a criminal, too. To me, that this seemed kind of stupid. It, it took him three years to decide he should desert. And that's his, his first opportunity. And then to go to Beckett, at least it was a little bit believable that Beckett at first was like, go away, kid, and didn't want him to come along with him. And it wasn't until after he came back with Chewie. But the Chewbacca scene, oh, I can't do a Wookiee howl or I would. That scene was so dumb. I'm sorry. He gets thrown down into this pit where Chewbacca is. Chewbacca kicks his ass, throws him around repeatedly. Han doesn't get hurt at all. No injury whatsoever in that entire scene, which was so completely unrealistic. It's a very dumb way to introduce
1: us to Chewbacca and put the two of them together. Of course, I'm going to disagree with you on all of that. I saw it more as, okay, yeah, Beckett was twirling his guns around. He was extremely confident and he was being successful. Exactly what Han wanted to be. So he looked at this guy going, that's the guy I want to be. So then when he realized, oh, hey, this guy's actually a con man like I was, like I like to be. He's just better at it and on a bigger scale. I want to join this guy. And so at that point, he made the decision, I am going to risk everything to join this guy so I can learn to become that guy. And I think that set it up. That's That kind of shows Han's character of how he saw himself and how he saw how he wanted to be. And then I also saw that the fight with Chewbacca as kind of going along with with Han in general throughout his life, where he does repeatedly get the shit beat out of him and he just gets up and keeps moving forward to make it work because that's the kind of guy he is. He knows that his plan's going to go wrong because it always happens, but he ends up coming out on top by just keep pushing forward. So I, I think that that scene sets that up and shows that the only issue I had with that scene was how come he spoke Wookiee, but then never spoke Wookiee again ever <laughs> in the rest of anything. But it's also well-established that Chewbacca can understand common tongue, basic.
0: As an aside, for the whole Han Chewie origin story thing, I know when Disney bought Lucasfilm, a large part of the expanded universe basically became non-canon. And a lot of people would argue that a large part of the expanded universe was a lot of fan fiction and was never really considered real Star Wars. But the movie makes a lot of references to the expanded universe, including things that are non-canon. One of the original origin stories, Han was in the Imperial Navy, but he deserted because he wanted to free Chewbacca from slavery. And because he freed Chewbacca from slavery, Chewbacca swore a life debt to Han. And that's why Chewbacca was always with Han, which made it also made more sense why Chewbacca would want to stay with him even though we got him off of that planet and going forward, didn't quite resonate with me. I mean, it didn't have to follow that story because, again, it's not canon anymore anyway. But they got thrown together to me. just was very sloppy. It just didn't really work for me.
1: What I liked about it, and I understand the life debt side of it, but then that almost turns it into away from a friendship and a partnership And more of a slavery type thing of, I'm staying with Han because I owe him, not because I like him. And what I liked about this movie is, yeah, he broke him out of slavery, but then they tried going in different directions. And Han was like, no, no, trust me. If you come with me, I'll get you off the planet. So he trusts him, goes without the planet. And then they, if if you pay attention a little bit as they go through it, they kind of argue a little bit. They kind of bicker a little bit. Chewie's a little skeptical of Han. But then as they move forward and things keep working out, Chewbacca starts to like Han. And I think what this movie did was it established them as friends and as partners. The next scene, after they take off with Beckett's crew, they go to the planet Vandor. Their plan is to steal a train car full of refined coaxium. When they've almost completed the heist, Infos Nest show up to steal the score during that fight, Val dies, uh, and Rios killed as well. Han takes over as a pilot, but has to drop the coaxium before they're killed, and the coaxium explodes. What I liked about this, it established a little bit and set up more of Han and Chewbacca becoming friends and becoming close. Han saves Chewie's life. Chewie almost falls off the train. Han catches him, pulls him back on. Uh, that kind of builds their relationship a little bit more. I like how they, at the end of that, he kind of has to drop that load to show how explosive the coaxium is uh, and how it explodes. I I like how they do that explosion, how it kind of blows up and then sucks everything back in immediately afterwards, destroying everything. I like how it shows how natural it was for Han to become an outlaw, how he just jumped right in and just did everything he needed to do and it just as smooth as Han could ever be. So... I liked the scene. It was it was full of action. It established a lot of characters. It established their motivation, if, and it, sh- it showed how well they can work together. I didn't
0: really like the scene and that whole section of the movie on several levels. The beginning part of that scene around the campfire, when we're talking about the motivation of the characters, Val and Rio were, and even Beckett were a lot more interesting to me than Han, because even when Han, they talk about why are you doing this, why would you want to do this, and Val jokes, "Well, look at him. It's probably about a girl." And then he reiterates his whole story, He's like, "Yeah, I'm doing this so I can get paid so that I can buy my own ship so that I can go back to Corellia and basically rescue my girlfriend and It's been over three years it's been established at that time in the movie, and even Rio says, "Why would you even think that she would that she's still alive or that she would still be there?" And he says, "Oh, I just know." So again, it points almost poking fun at
1: its own really bad plot. And I saw that as Han as a character up to this point, he spent the last three plus years working towards a single goal. And if she's not on Corellia waiting for him, he has just wasted the last three years and his entire plan was for naught. So I think he has to believe that she's still there or he loses his entire motivation.
0: I think that's overstating it again. I think it's a stupid motivation. It also seems to be very uncharacteristic of a Han Solo that we meet later in the Star Wars movie, but maybe it's because he's become more bitter because of the whole Kira situation. I I think that sets up that character. Maybe that does. But I mean, to me, it it really explodes the stupidity of the storyline when not to jump to the next scene when they actually go meet Dryden Boss, oh, what a wonderful coincidence! I don't have to go back to Corellia, because she's right here! My girlfriend's on this ship! Wow, how lazy and stupid is the storytelling to get us there? Because again, at the end of the train heist scene, my other major problem with the train heist scene is, and again, maybe it's because I couldn't sit back and just enjoy the movie as is, it's like... I think
1: you wanted to hate this movie before you went into it. Well,
0: my problem, and this is, in some respects, this is like, in general, the prequel problem. And not just for Star Wars, but for anything that uses a prequel. When you have a movie that has established characters, you're doing a prequel, and you know that those characters exist in the future of the movie, we know Han, Chewie, and Lando can't die. So the, the train high scene with the whole dramatic tension of, oh, is Chewie going to follow his death? Oh, is Han going to get shot? No, we know he doesn't die because we know that he exists in the future. So the dramatic nature of that scene was completely empty because we knew that Han and Chewie didn't die. And in case they basically kill off the people that they can, Val and Rio, because we don't know them, and might as well, someone should die, so
1: we'll kill them. Right. But on the other side, too, I don't think the drama was, is Chewbacca going to die? The drama was, this is where Chewbacca falls in love with Han, because Han saved his life. So I'm looking at it from a completely different perspective. You mentioned
0: Han's flying ability. This is one of the other things that I kind of was annoyed with the movie. Han, much more so than shows us, he basically just says that he's become a great pilot. What I would have rather have seen, since it was alluded to earlier that he comb- had combat flight training, I would have rather have seen some brief scenes of Han actually, like, flying an Imperial Shuttle as sort of a nod to Return of the Jedi, and maybe even seeing him fly a TIE fighter, and maybe even fight TIE fighters in some type of battle simulation or training, because I think that would have been cool, and you use that to show off his piloting skills. Him piloting the trawler and the, the train heist scene, it shows some skill, but I wanted to see better proof of his piloting skills other than that and what we see later with him piloting the Millennium Falcon in the Kessel Run.
1: I agree with that. I would have liked to see more. I wouldn't put it past them that they filmed something more there and then cut it out because they had to fit time constraints or it didn't really further the plot any other than establishing that he was a pilot when they were going to establish that later by the simple... Rio, who was the pilot, looking at him going, wow, you really are a really good pilot. Which I thought was just a
0: cheap way to try to sell it.
1: It probably was a cheap way of trying to sell it, but it was a way of just establishing, okay, somebody's recognizing he is a great pilot.
0: But the end of that scene, though, and the transition into the next scene, again, is another thing with a poor storytelling, this annoys me. Because at the end of that scene, so Val, who is Beckett's girlfriend slash wife, ends up killing herself so that they can pull off this job. Who knows if he was really all that close with Rio? He dies. But then Han dumps the coaxium, making the job a complete bust. And then Beckett basically has that, which is also sort of a callback or a call forward, I guess. How he tells Han, it's like, you have no idea what it's like to have a price on your head. Because Han basically screwed up the job and Val and Rio died and they had nothing to show for it. Beckett, you know, punches him in the face. But Beckett should have basically wanted to kill Han at that point, maybe to get some type of vengeance for Val dying. But it made no sense. They needed to push the the story forward. It made no sense to bring Han to Dryden Voss. It made no sense that Han and Chewie would want to go to Dryden Voss Because, like, even Beckett said, it's like, they don't know you. If you go, they're probably going to kill you. Plus, they also oversold up the whole thing. It's like, if you go and they see your face, you're in this life for good now which was overselling. Oh, really? He's, he can't ever be anything other than a criminal or a smuggler?
1: I think the reason that Beckett wanted them to join is because he knew that was his only chance of getting out of this is if he had any kind of crew to move forward with. Otherwise, he was going to die and he had no other option. I think the reason Han and Chewie decided to go along with it, I think Chewie's just along for the ride. He's like, eh, whatever. Let's. It's better than what I was doing, hanging out in a mud ball. And I think Han's looking at it going, hey, this is my chance. He, he is a character that is willing to risk everything for that chance. This one thing, as risky as it is, but if he can pull this off, he gets everything he has wanted. So moving on, they have to go to Dryden Voss of Crimson Dawn on his yacht. And they're going to plead their case and try to figure out how they're going to be able to settle the debt, if they can settle the debt. Their plan is to go to the planet Kessel steal the unrefined coaxium, and then take that over to Savarine to have it refined, because they have the ability to refine it, but it's outside the Empire, and they're going to meet Dryden Voss there.
0: The only aspect of that that was almost acceptable was the Han bullshitting his way into a plan. Because Dryden Voss was basically about to kill them, and then Han kind of takes the lead and says, well, we'll get the unrefined coaxium, and then Chewbacca tosses in, let's go to Savarine to get it refined. And everyone's like, this sounds like a really dangerous plan. You'll never get it from Kessel to Saverine because it'll blow up before then. You Needed a really fast ship and a great pilot. So it was a little bit contrived, but at least it was consistent with, yeah, Han bullshitting his way into a pretty almost impossible to pull off type
1: mission. Yeah, exactly. If it's Han, it's a half-assed plan that barely works. If it's going to work at all, it probably won't work. But then he makes it work. I think that, again, fits perfectly into the Han character. And you already flowed some hate to how he just happens to run into Kira. Yes, it is a convenient plot point, which is consistent in everything Star Wars. Convenient plot points where people just happen to be in the right spot at the right time to make it work. Han meets up with Kira. She alludes to still basically being a slave, but is very, very distant about it. She doesn't explain anything. How did she get there? What did what'd she do? How did she become a top lieutenant in only three years? I like that they kept that a mystery. Alright, so moving on. Uh, in order to complete their mission, the one thing they're missing is they need a fast ship. Kira happens to know somebody, so she takes the team to meet Lando Calrissian, who is said to have a fast smuggling ship. Han plays Lando in Sabacc uh, in order to win the ship, but loses when Lando cheats. Uh, they end up bartering with Lando in order to use him and his ship, For a cut of the loot. Obviously, one of the biggest things I loved about this was Lando. I really liked Lando in this movie.
0: I will give you that. Lando Calrissian was very well portrayed. And I really did like how we met him in this scene. Why I like Lando a lot is his droid navigator is awesome. I have to give bib crops to L3. And yes, we get to see the Millennium Falcon. Although at first, it gets explained... And I'm okay with the explanation But the first time you see seen the Millennium Falcon You're like, that's not the Millennium Falcon It doesn't look right But we, we hear that Lando has made some Modifications or customizations To it, and that's why it initially Looks a little bit different
1: So that being such a, a short scene I didn't really expect a lot of conversation Out of that, so let's just go ahead and move on to The next section, which is The entire movie, The Kessel Run Can I just do a, a Little mini rant On the Kessel Run? Do we have time? Sure, we
0: have like, what, two hours? I can do a two-hour rant. I could, actually, sadly, I could do a two-hour rant on the Kessel Run. (laughs) When we got to this point, I really felt that this was like, why did they make this movie? I felt that this was why. And the Kessel Run, in the original Star Wars movie, in A New Hope, when Luke Skywalker and, and Ben Kenobi are trying to find a ship to get them off of Tatooine, Han Solo claims that the Millennium Falcon is the fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy. It completed the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs. And for the longest time, people made fun of that because parsec is a unit of distance, not a unit of time. So it was essentially like Han saying, I'm a really fast runner. I ran a marathon in 13 miles. Well, if you ran a marathon in 13 miles, you didn't run a marathon because that's half of a marathon. Plus, telling us that you ran it in 13 miles doesn't tell us you're fast because you didn't tell us how long it took you to run 13 miles. So Star Wars has long been made fun of for getting that one piece of science in your science fiction run. So they came up with a way to explain, well, it is actually the half marathon problem. The Kessel run would be 20 parsecs long because there's only one safe navigable space through essentially what is this giant nebula filled with asteroids, and, oh, my hate will flow when we get to that stupid giant space squid, but I'll come back to that.
1: That's funny. I called it a giant (sighs) space squid as well.
0: (laughs) God, I hated that scene. But anyway, the whole idea that there was a way to take a shortcut through the castle run But it is essentially suicide, because they said that when they first got there, yeah, you could try to fly right through the nebula, but it's all filled with asteroids and planetoids and uh, ionized gas and stuff, and lots of ships have tried, but they got destroyed. So showing them that the 12 parsec thing was taking the shortcut through and the things that they needed to do to actually make that happen. But, well, as we continue to talk about the story, the way that they did it actually even annoyed me because they made it worse in some respects. They solved the Parsec problem, but they made it worse. But uh, let us
1: return well, to going through the scene. I am excited to get to that. So they go through this and, and they, they even show that the that route is kept open. It's kind of a hole. They've got droids or, or something there that kind of holds this run open, holds everything back so that they can fit through there. But they establish why it's so dangerous and that why you have to take that one route. So they they go on to Kessel. They enact the plan, which of course goes slightly wrong, but they make it work. They get the coaxium. They reboard the ship. They take off. In that whole process, uh, they they start a huge revolution and free all of the slaves, both living android. <laughs> Not to be consumed with android, he meant living and droids. Right, right, right. Space is there. During that process, though, L337 is damaged. While Lando attempts to save that droid, he's shot, so Han and Chewie have to save Lando. But that scene annoyed me, too. Eventually,
0: Lando gets shot. But so much of that scene is blaster fire flying everywhere and characters not even trying to get to a more defensive position, just standing out in the open in front of the Millennium Falcon, shooting, and yes, eventually Lando gets hit. That scene annoyed me for the fact that Blaster fire was going everywhere, and it, it was so long before someone actually got hit.
1: But go ahead. Next time you watch this movie, you need a Snickers. So, because L3 is damaged and Lando is hurt, he's trying to help L3... Save her life, I guess? He allows Han to pilot the Millennium Falcon. He jumps in, they take off, they start going through the castle run again, and run into a blockade from the Empire, and in order to get away from the blockade, he has to fly into the Maelstrom. Through there, they encounter a large electric space squid.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Giant space squid! I hated the giant space squid, I'm sorry! It was one of the stupidest scenes in the movie. It was almost campy.
1: Breathe, buddy. Breathe, buddy. We'll get there. We'll get there.
0: No, when the space squid shows up on the screen and they all go, Ah! At the same time in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, That was so stupid! Oh, it was campy stupid. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) So in order to get away from the giant electric space squid of hate, they trick it into a gravity well, which, which also catches them into it. Uh, and the only way they can get out of that is by injecting some of the unrefined quaxium into the fusion reactor, which allows them to escape in 12 parsecs, rounded So down. basically,
0: let's just drop some nitro in the gas tank. Is basically the stupid... And this is where I, they made it worse. The whole idea of, of being able to make the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs was they needed to be able to navigate that path but also that the Millennium Falcon had to be fast enough, that it had to be the fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy. Well, it's not, because they used a one-time-only, can-never-be-repeated trick to boost the speed of the Millennium Falcon by dropping the raw coaxium into the fusion reactor so it would fly faster than it has ever flown and will never fly that fast again. So the Millennium Falcon is actually not the fastest hunk of chunk of the galaxy. They cheated by essentially dropping nitro in the gas tank. So again, they fixed the parsec problem, but they did it in a dumb way.
1: Well, you are getting way ahead of us, but I will address that, because I think they establish it being the fastest ship through navigation, not through necessarily speed. And they do that when they integrate L3's navigation computers into the Millennium Falcon. What I'm saying is when you're talking smuggler, speed is getting from point A to point B the fastest, right? Okay. So if you can do that through navigation, you're still the fastest ship. Because if you can make it from point A to point B... No, you're the
0: smartest navigator. That doesn't mean you're the fastest ship.
1: Did you make it from point A to point B the fastest? You're the fastest ship. So that's my argument on that, and that's why I'm okay with that. So let's back up a little bit. I'm assuming you don't have any qualms with getting to Kessel.
0: Getting to Kessel? No. I was getting away from Kessel. was the problem.
1: On the planet of Kessel, did you have any qualms, any issues with the droid liberation? I enjoyed it. I I thought it was okay. I don't know if it was meant to be comedic or it was meant to be more serious. I took it as comedic with serious implications. I, I really liked, again, establishing Han and Chewie's relationship when Han told Chewie go ahead, go save your people. I'll take care of this. That's more important to you than this is. You go do your thing.
0: That was a friendship-building moment. Yes, I like that scene.
1: And then I also liked, when, when coming back, when Chewie was looking at, do I follow my people and try to escape this area, or do I stay with Han? And granted, we don't know, because we don't speak Wookiee. They don't really say it. But I think, if if you go back, earlier they talk about motivations. And Chewie's motivation is he wants to go across the galaxy and free all of his enslaved people.
0: Find his tribe or Find, his family. Yeah,
1: exactly. I think at that point, he makes the decision he's going to be more able to do that with Han.
0: It is a little odd that he decides not to go with the Wookiees, but I buy it at least that this a bond has been formed between him and Han. And just freeing a couple of Wookiees there wasn't really his ultimate motivation, so...
1: Right. I was okay with that. So I, I overall, I, I liked this, this section. There wasn't really anything that bugged me. I did
0: like the arrival at Kessel because it was nice. I keep calling them callbacks. I guess technically they're call forwards because it's set for the original trilogy. They arrive on Kessel and basically Chewie is in restraints, kind of alluding to what they did in A New Hope when they were on the Death Star and then also alluding to Return of the Jedi because Beckett is basically wearing the disguise that Lando Calrissian wears when he infiltrates Jabba's palace.
1: She's also impersonating the Trade Federation, which also kind of goes to the the prequels. I'm like, oh, hey, cool. The Trade Federation still exists at this point.
0: The other thing that was funny for Expanded Universe references when Lando is by himself in the Millennium Falcon recording his own like, personal yeah. <laughs> diary. The thing that was funny about that, which, again, is is sort of a Star Wars Easter Reiki type thing, is the, the stuff he was doing is actually a, a trilogy of novels in the expanding universe. They're Legends novels, so they're not canon. But the stuff that he was narrating actually came from the stories and titles of the Lando Calrissian novels in the expanding universe. So it was kind of a nice like in joke that, yeah, those are not canon, but maybe those are Lando's own personal fan fiction that he actually put out into the real universe. So that was a nice little Star Wars reference there.
1: Yeah, that was that was neat. I I like how they kind of tie all that together. You had the issues with uh, they're just standing there and they're not being shot, which kind of, again, consistent with Star Wars, nobody can hit. Only the good guys can hit anybody. I liked Kira coming out and just throwing grenades all over the place and blowing everything up and being like, let's go. I like in these movies uh, the women just standing up and just owning on everybody from time to time, at least. Well, the thing that I
0: kind of wish they had actually shown us is in the Kessel scene, Kara kicks the administrator's ass, but we right. don't actually get to see her do it. Yeah. We just get the hilarious reaction, whoa, whoa by <laughs> L3. is like, I've never seen anybody do that before. Right. right. Uh, and the martial art that she says she uses is actually a martial art that Darth Maul uses in the Clone Wars. And that's kind of a, a heads up maybe to Star Wars right. geeks who are watching that. Hey. To the deep fans. Yes, the deep fans. There's going to be a Darth Maul thing coming up later.
1: But I would have rather I would have actually liked to have seen Kara actually kick that guy's ass. Yeah, that would have been nice. I, I on the other hand, the mystery of it is kind of nice too, of what did she do? That's 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 kind uh, and, of interesting. And, and who
0: knows? Maybe they filmed it and it looked stupid, and they decided maybe this is the reaction of us not seeing it and L3 going, whoa, was better.
1: Yeah, who who knows? Maybe at that point she'd been injured by a dragon and couldn't quite do the scene very well.
0: Don't be dissing the mother of dragons. <laughs>
1: So they they escape and there they hit the blockade. I absolutely despised the electric space squid the first time I watched it. I was especially like, "Why? How is this even existing here?" But then I remember that they have established that there are animals that can fly through space in lore, um, in, in various other areas. But and it was
0: to me, it was like as bad as the space dinosaur who lives in an asteroid in Empire Strikes Back was. Let's make it even more ridiculous, and have the giant space squid who lives in the asteroid field inside the nebula to me it it was it annoyed me. It was just a can't be monster movie ish thing, especially their reaction to it. It just well there's it, and it didn't need to be there. They had already established that this area was dangerous because of planetoids and asteroids and ion storms and all that type of stuff. They didn't need the monster. But on the other hand,
1: they'd already flown that. They'd already spent a lot of time flying through there with almost no danger except for the TIE Fighters. So I think they needed to add something. And they'd mentioned that there were big animals living in there, big dangerous things. They had to have something there to show the level of danger. Why is it so dangerous? Why can't you just avoid the asteroids and call it good like they do everywhere else that they run into that stuff? So I ended up being okay with it. And then, as you mentioned, the one-time-only drop into the fusion reactor and jump out of there. I'm okay with that. I also like how it almost broke the ship first to kind of show, yeah, this isn't something that you really want to do because it could go horribly wrong and destroy you, but they were about to be destroyed anyway. So, hey, we're going to get destroyed. Let's do this thing that may possibly save us, which is right in line with everything else in this movie.
0: The other thing that happened in that scene is we also got the Millennium Falcon escape pod, which was basically the thing that made the front part of the Millennium Falcon look different uh, than it is. Got jettisoned by Han. So then it becomes looking more like the Millennium Falcon we're used to seeing.
1: And how it got all beat up and how it went from a nice looking fixed up ship to a beat up hunk of junk that is still somehow better than every other ship. Another thing I I would like to kind of point out, too, as well, because I've seen a lot of people hate on it, how Han immediately knew how to fly that so well. I know there's a lot of hate for that, but he also mentions he's familiar with the ship to begin with because his dad made that ship. And then there's the other side, too, of there's got to be some sort of standardization for spaceships uh, as far as all the switches and and what everything does. Otherwise, there's how do you go from one ship to the other? You'd, You'd have to relearn all that stuff and then the question of well how did how did Chewie just know how to fly how to how to jump in and do it when he's been locked in a mud ball and then they mentioned well he's 190 years old he's seen some stuff he's been around I think there's a lot of things in there that that really kind of connect everything together and I really like how immediately when Chewie sits down as a co-pilot Han and Chewie just work together naturally it's just a natural team They don't have to talk about things or tell each other what to do. They just know what to do, and I think that's fantastic. It really shows that partnership.
0: Yeah, the thing that we saw, I think, more in this movie than I at least remember seeing in other movies, the Millennium Falcon had kind of like a steering wheel, so we actually see Han actually flying the Millennium Falcon by moving the levers of the sort of dual um, steering wheel mechanism mm. as opposed to just kind of like throwing f- switches and stuff and having a, a yoke to move around. So they did kind of play that angle up. And yeah, they did mention that his father had worked on YT-1300, which is the Corellian class of ship. And it is a Corellian ship and he's from Karelia. Nerd. Nerd alert! So that is believable why he could be familiar with maybe not just that type of ship or maybe just all Corellian ships have similar cockpits or something like that.
1: Moving on, they escape Maelstrom, Uh, they barely make it to Savarine, and start unloading on the desert planet. Oh
0: yeah, that's the thing that we forgot to mention. The stupid plot hole, the stupid storytelling, this whole thing of raw coaxium has to be kept cool, or it will explode. And they made a big deal about that while they were going through the Maelstrom that that was going to happen. They couldn't have found a ship with a refrigeration unit or installed a refrigeration unit or got a droid that
1: just blows cold air on them.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Something like that. Or again, okay, let's take something that's incredibly unstable at high temperatures and take it to a desert planet to get refined. For me, it did that to make that scene seem more dramatically tense and yeah. make it seem like it was a bigger deal. That's why we needed to try to complete the Kessel run in less than 20 parsecs. We had to move very fast from Kessel to Saverine because the stuff was going to blow up. So it's sort of like an artificial bomb timer type thing yeah. to make it more
1: tense. That that really bothered the whole time. Like, why? I mean, this is a cargo ship. Mm-hmm. A cargo ship is going to have temperature control. Most things I can usually find a way of defending it. That one I've got nothing. So they make it to Saverine. They unload it. They're, they're waiting for. Dryden. All of a sudden the Emphas Nest show up again. In this scene they kind of talk about how there's there's different pockets of people that are fighting and trying to hit against the crime syndicates who work for the Empire and they're, they're trying to just do whatever they can to hit back because they've been ravaged and their planets have been completely stripped of resources and they have nothing else to do.
0: Yeah, they're allies that want to rebel. A right. little bit hit you over the head but with it. But they have it.
1: zero resources to, to go for that. So, But my
0: my problem with this, and this was sort of like supposed to be like a plot twisty thing, like Empress who's been chasing them all movie, and they've been called marauders and pirates, and they're supposed to be killers, and even Beckett says that's all these people are. They're just killers. And then the leader takes off its helmet, and it's a, a young girl, and then she kind of gives them the story, a little bit of Empress then, and we get the rest of it later part that doesn't really make sense to me is, why wouldn't Emphasnest just kill them and take the coaxium?
1: Because at that point, I think they realize that they're somewhat on the same side. Or could No, I, d- I don't
0: think so. The thing that—it th- doesn't make sense that they didn't want to just kill them and take it, especially since Beckett says, well, you don't want to do that because Crimson Dawn's on its way and they're going to kill you when you get here. Well, not to jump ahead, they basically ambush Crimson Dawn and kill them and end up leaving with the coaxium anyway— So why would they have even gone through the problem of even risking... Because then there
1: wouldn't be a movie.
0: Exactly, because the story's stupid. If they needed it, why would they risk letting Han and Beckett possibly lose this very valuable piece of uh, property, which they said was like 60 million credits worth of coaxium that they're going to use to fund the rebellion? Why risk not getting any of that and losing it to Beckham and Han when they've been chasing them for that stuff the whole movie? It just doesn't make sense that they all of a sudden, oh, you think we're bad guys? We're good guys.
1: But they're chasing them because all they know is this group of people are going after coaxium. So if we follow this group of people, eventually we may get coaxium. They don't know how to get it from, from Kessel. But they see, they're tracking the ship So they see they went to Kessel and stole all this coaxium from the Empire So now this group of people that are trying to fight against the crime syndicates in the Empire Just see this group of people steal and and evade the Empire Okay, there's an option there Maybe we can make peace and work together with these people Maybe even recruit these people It it may be a stretch, but it's something And then as they're kind of there and they're talking a little bit Well hey, Crimson Dawn is on its way all right, so what do we do? Are we going to fight or are we going to work together? And they kind of leave it open. So I'm okay with that because it's part of the storyline. I mean, that that's part of what happens. I could see that happening. Part but- of the
0: poorly written storyline, that whole double cross within a double cross or triple cross or something like that, but the whole how we resolve from that part of the movie to the conclusion and how they worked it around was unnecessarily convoluted, and ultimately, I thought, really didn't make much sense. But before we get to that, the part that I kind of liked, and was kind of funny, was the Lando, I hate you, (laughs) I know, which is the allusion to The Empire Strikes Back, I love you, I know, with Princess Leia. And the part that was funny, where Han's like, see that ship over there? It has 30 hired guns on it. I could just snap my fingers in the-. and then Lando just takes off and just leaves them. Yeah. Very
1: very <laughs> Han and Lando.
0: <laughs> see again. So that part was kind of funny. And he's like, oh, Beckett, you, you do your thing. So that, I liked that part, but the, the story that proceeds from there to the end of the film annoyed me.
1: I think that in all of this really establishes who Han is a, is a character, and how good guy who's trying to be a bad guy.
0: Uh, well, they did try to hit us over the head a little bit too much with that, too, because before Emphas Nest shows up, or right about when they're about to show up, there is that scene with Han and Kira, and Han's even said, hey, you know, let's just take off. Right now, you and I. And she's like, we can't do that. Crimson Dawn will hunt us down. That doesn't make any sense. And, I, and, and Han's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm a smuggler now. I'm, I'm an outlaw. And she she laughs at him and says, no, I'm the only one who knows the truth about you. You're the good guy. And he goes like, I'm not even a good guy. So they tried to to squish that scene in there to allude to that a little bit, which is a little bit too on the nose. And we really haven't seen Han do anything other than act kind of selfish, because even he does, as the prequel problem uh, requires him to, he resists the call to join the early days of the Rebellion. Later, when they say we need leaders like right. you,
1: but then throughout the other movies as well, he keeps trying to leave. Like he's like, I don't want to be a part of this. Well of the other movies, he's trying thing. to
0: leave because he has a price on his head from Jabba the Hut, and he's well, getting chased by bounty hunters.
1: But he's he's obviously safe with the rebellion. But he wants to go take care of that. He wants to go do his own thing. He doesn't want to be mixed up and all that. He just wants to just live solo and do his own thing.
0: That was so bad. <laughs>
1: But now we get to the the final confrontation with Dryden Boss. So basically Han comes up with this plan of, hey, we can trick Dryden and give him something that looks like the coaxium and actually give the coaxium to the people that need it to survive, trick him, get our money, and then we can run away.
0: Yeah, so everybody gets what they want. Right. And And this gets the coaxium, we get our money, Dryden gets tricked. Right. Everybody gets out alive. Yeah.
1: And Beckett's like, eh, I'm not down for this. Sorry, buddy, and leaves. So then as they start to go through and do this, surprise, double, triple, quadruple cross of whatever. I see this as very Han.
0: It's very Han, but again, that scene was very confusing because even after watching it multiple times, it's like, yes, Han had a plan as it gets revealed, was built into the plan, expecting Beckett to double cross them. So he was coming up with a way to double-cross Dryden within the double-cross with Beckett. But then when Beckett figures out that it's a double-cross, then he tries to double-cross Han back. It was unnecessarily convoluted, plus the whole point of how much of the plan did Kira actually know when he accuses her? Is he doing that for real, or is he doing that to go wrong? I think all
1: that was part of the plan.
0: To me, it's like that seemed unnecessarily convoluted to try to make that like plot twisty and it didn't land well for me
1: see i could i took a step back and put myself in his shoes a little bit and said i could definitely see this plan because he comes up with his plan of hey let's bring him something that looks like it or, or the empty containers and when beckett leaves he knows okay beckett knows this plan And he's going to go betray us because that's what he's going to do to save his own skin. That's the only way he's going to be able to save his own skin. So what can we do to trick both of them? Well, let's bring the actual coaxium there. They'll think it's not the actual coaxium. So since we know they're going to ambush Emphus Nest, we can trick his army over there. While we have safely in our possession the actual coaxium and we're tricking them. I could see that coming up as a plan. It seems very convoluted when you're seeing it happen, but I could see that as, as being an actual plan out.
0: Well, that's what I was also alluding to earlier. The fake fakeout of how they defeated the Crimson Dawn soldiers by basically letting the Savarine people wear their outfits and pretend to be them so they can then ambush the Crimson Dawn soldiers they could have just done that anyway without Han or Beckett or anyone killed them and just done that and got what they wanted anyway. So that's why it didn't make sense that they had to go along with Han for that whole story, that whole plot or that plan. This didn't really make sense to me.
1: See, it does to me because this was Han's plan of if we do it this way, we can take out this entire group of the Crimson Dawn. Whereas if Enfys Nest just tried to ambush... Crimson Dawn, as they came off the ship or something like that, they're just going to call for reinforcements. They're going to do something else and they're going to bring a lot more on top of their heads going forward.
0: I guess I kind of see your point if if Han's plan was explained to the audience then it would have been kind of just as bad because then it would have been rather Mm -hmm. meh. Right. But not having it explained and then let it kind of like unfold plot twisty wise, it just it fell flat to me, but, you know, it is what it is. At
1: this point in the movie, you were just hating it anyway, so I don't think they could have done anything there that could have turned it around for you.
0: Well, so, yeah, but yeah, but again, I, I still think it was bad, but go ahead, back to so, that.
1: So from there, though, um, obviously all the plot twistiness, and then Beckett obviously betrays them, takes the big guy, the Wookiee, makes him carry off the the coaxium, which then leaves Dryden, Kiera, and Han alone together and what's gonna happen big epic fight long story short there kira kills dryden they decide they're gonna run off together han leaves kira's gonna get some money together by stealing the stuff han leaves kira doesn't actually steal the stuff instead she takes the ring the crimson dawn ring and calls the leader
0: I think and, and I'm going
1: to set back and let you rant here.
0: Yeah, just before that, because again, at that point, it's like, because part of the whole plan of tricking Fred and Voss was to get the money from him. So Beckett steals the coaction with Chewie, so they still need the money, but they had to have a way of, well, why wouldn't Han and Kira just stay behind and take the money? So she sends Han, you got to go save Chewbacca. So well, go, go
1: run away and save Chewbacca. Time out. The plan was to take the money from Crimson Dawn, but... Also take the co- keep the coaxium so they give it to Emphas Nest.
0: Yes, I'm saying that. But I mean, but when the Coaxium Beckett screwed up that plan because he double crossed them within the double cross and left with the coaxium, but he takes Chewbacca with him, so that Han has to go after him. But what left behind on the ship, Kira and Han could have taken the money, which was actually the original underlying of the plan. They get the money, they give the coaxium to Emphas Nest. And yeah, Han thinks, okay, yeah, you stay behind and do whatever you have to do on the ship, including getting the money and stuff, and then I'll go get Chewie, and then she ends up betraying him and contacting the boss guy, which we can talk about in a second.
1: See, I think all that was part of the plan. I think they knew that Beckett was going to kill the remaining guards and take off with the coaxium. He had planned for that because... More predictable. Predictable,
0: but his, his betrayal of them was predictable. But I don't, I, I don't buy that they thought that the plan, that they expected him not only to betray them but to steal the coaxium
1: and run away. I think they did.
0: And I think that's giving that that plan again too much credit. I, I really that whole sequence. This seems like again a lot of things that happened in the movie. Let's just make something happen that just so we can move the scene on to the next thing we want. In this case, the big fight between Han. And and Kira, uh, without us thinking too much about how we got there, doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense.
1: While talking about that fight scene, though, how awesome was that fight scene? It was kind of short, but watching watching, uh, Amelia Clark do that fight scene Mm -hmm. with those awesome moves, the uh, Darth Maul moves, that was pretty sweet. Well,
0: that's why I was saying earlier, I would have liked to have seen how she took down the administrator on Kessel we didn't get to see her in action. We got to see her in action in that scene, and it is cool. Also, as an aside, I think it's, this may be the only Star Wars movie I remember that actually features vibroblades, because that's what the weapons that Dryden and Boss had. And right. those things are
1: freaking cool, and they were used very cool They're in used in other weapons in, the, in other movies, but not... Small handheld ones like that.
0: Yeah, so that that was a really cool... So that that was a, a cool uh, fight scene. But again, it also lacked the dramatic tension. You knew he wasn't going to kill Han. So you knew Han was not at risk. He wasn't going to die. Who was going to kill Dryden boss?
1: But you didn't know if Dryden was going to survive or if Kira was going to survive.
0: Yeah, so that was up in the air, but you knew Han wasn't really right. at fault. And then we get the really, the, so the plot twisty weirdness of how they got to that, I don't like. But now we get to what is arguably the real plot twist. <laughs> As after Han leaves the ship, which I want to come back to when Han leaves the ship and goes and gets. Of course, we will. But, but before, so Han leaves the ship, Kira's by herself. What happens?
1: Well, Kira decides to call the, her her boss and explain what happened. Uh, who happens to be the one and only Darth Maul, who is one of my favorite Star Wars characters of all time, which is a not a shock to a lot of big fans, but a huge shock to the casual fans that have no idea that Darth Maul is still alive.
0: It was a huge shock to casual fans, especially if you had not seen uh, Clone Wars animated series, or even, I guess you wouldn't have needed to see Rebels, but Clone Wars, the animated series, explains how Darth Maul survived being cut in half by right. Obi-Wan in the first, in episode one of the movie. So yeah, casual fans would have been like, huh? Uh, although she, I don't think she actually calls him. We know it's Darth Maul, but I don't think she actually calls him by his name.
1: Right, So people right. might
0: have said, oh, maybe it's someone who looks like Darth Maul. There,
1: I, did, I did see there was a lot of chatter of people asking, who was that? Was that actually Darth Maul? Was that just another, another person of the same species?
0: Yeah, because in the in the Clone Wars, he asked her to bring the ship to Dathomir, which is where the Knight Sisters mm-hmm. live in in the Clone Wars and in the Expanded Universe. And actually, it's the Knight Sisters who actually found Darth Maul for Palpatine as an apprentice. And in the Clone Wars animated series, he does have a brother. Yeah. uh So yeah. So it is possible. Very large, angry. Brother. A very large, angry brother. So it is possible that that couldn't have been him, but we now know afterwards
1: that it was. But they 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 do show from the bottom. They show the robot legs, which are perfectly go in line with what you see in the animated shows. And then, just in case you had any questions, they show the lightsaber at the end for no reason other than to show you, yes, this is Darth Maul. So you've been alluding to you have a lot of issues about this.
0: I didn't really understand what the point of that was. Is it to set up a sequel to the movie? Yes. And but, but why?
1: This sets up and it also presents to the casual viewer that Darth Maul is still around, is still doing things to set up for... Hey, maybe they're going to bring Darth Maul into. Well, that's my series. whole
0: problem. If they don't, it just seems rather odd. I, I didn't really understand why that scene was necessary because my whole problem, if there's going to be a sequel, it seems like it's not going to have going to have little to nothing to do with Han Solo, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But it would seem like they were trying to set up some type of Darth Maul, some Crimson Dawn movie Possibly. that Cara and Darth Maul would be in, and I don't know if that would then have some type of overlap with a Kenobi movie or something because again. We know ultimately that's what happens. Darth Maul confronts Kenobi again and, get, and does right. get killed, killed. But yeah, it, it just struck me as a weird thing to just throw in there for a little bit of shock value and a where is it going from here thing.
1: So to me, it also, it answered questions though. Throughout this entire movie, I was asking the questions of what happened with Kira in those three years. How did she get to this point of working for Crimson Dawn? How is she a top lieutenant for Dryden Voss? How did she learn to fight that well in that style? So that answered that well, question. Well, earlier
0: she lied and said that Dryden had taught her martial arts style when she took out the administrator. That's what she told L3 because she didn't want to say Darth Maul's name, presumably. And did even, she actually say Dryden's name on that? She said that she Dryden had taught her. But it might be understandable that she didn't want to mention. Because right. even Dryden Voss, when they were earlier in the movie, is like, I answer to someone, too. And he right. wouldn't even say who it was. So right. apparently, you're not supposed to say Darth Maul. So I think
1: this kind of sets up, and also, you know, there he's saying, "Hey, come meet me on what's the planet's name?"
0: Ah, uh, Dathomir. Nerd. Which is yeah, nerd. <laughs> that's where the Night Sisters are. But right. yes, so I mean, so
1: he tells her to meet him there. Basically, setting up to I'm going to train you as possibly an apprentice, or possibly somebody that is one of my top people. Train you more. So I think that answers those questions a little bit more. Of how did she get to this point?
0: I don't know if it, if it does. Maybe I'm also overthinking it. Maybe it was simply, we have to get rid of Kira.
1: That was the next you know, thing I was like, going to say. We it also know that
0: he, she doesn't become a part of the crew of a Millennium Falcon. So it's like, what do you do? You either kill her, or what do you do with her character? So maybe that was the, maybe she's going to go off and have her own adventure, maybe not. But we all know, prequel problem the Kara is not in any of right. the other
1: movies. But I think it also sets up Han a little bit. Because remember throughout this whole thing, Han's entire motivation was he wants the ship so he can get the girl and live with the girl. Now that girl, the one biggest thing he has always wanted his entire life, he's been working for this whole time, just left. Maybe I am better on my own like, like Beckett was saying. Maybe I should just be alone.
0: Maybe that is motivation for why he becomes more bitter. Right. And why he's always pushing
1: people away and, and trying to do his own thing going forward. Because the one person he was close to besides Chewie, I guess he was close to Beckett. Beckett betrayed him. He was close to Kira. She betrayed him. Chewie's the only person that hasn't betrayed him. Lando betrayed him.
0: As it was alluded to in the movie, he had a much longer and obviously closer relationship with Kira they were obviously romantically involved, right. allegedly grew up as kids on the streets of Curlia So there was a lot more history to that relationship. It does beg the question, though, that maybe he felt jilted by her, but would he really not go after her at all?
1: Maybe he does. Again, this that whole scene, to me, it answers questions while setting up more questions to set up her future, which, as everybody is well aware at this point, every movie has to set up for a larger world. So then let's go to where you wanted to go, or you want to make sure we go back to. Han chases after Beckett and and Chewie. This scene makes
0: no sense. So Beckett and Chewie leave Mm -hmm. with the coaxium. There's this fight scene with Dryden and Kira and Han. Han then leaves, and it's really stupid even in the movie you can see. The ship is way in the background. Beckett and Chewie are walking. And Han is somehow magically in front of them, waiting
1: for them. He did it in only two parsecs.
0: Yes. Apparently he (laughs) did. Apparently he is. Maybe he really is a fast marathon runner. How the hell did he not just catch up with them, but he gets in front of them? And again, again, lazy storytelling, maybe bad editing. I don't know. But just so that they could set up the final confrontation, the showdown with him uh, and Beckett, that was stupid.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. But the showdown was nice.
0: The showdown was nice because it was one of the other things that this movie could be said to have kind of sort of addressed is the Han shot first. That was one of the other things about A New Hope that a lot of people argued about for a long time. And sometimes people even still argue whether or not it was actually an editing change made by George Lucas in the cantina scene where he's confronted by uh, Greedo, the bounty hunter for Java the Hutt and he has, he's holding a blaster on Han, and Han is very slowly getting his blaster out underneath the table. And then the question was always, who shot first? And a lot of people said in the original movie, the Greedo shot first, and then Han shot in self-defense. And then in the more recent movies, it's clear that he shot first, and then Greedo's blaster went off second. So the Han shot first controversy has existed for a long time. And that scene, it's almost like Beckett, basically, if you may have to say, it's like, Kind of like I have one more lesson for you, kid, and he doesn't even get to say it. Han just shoots him before he can even say because because he
1: sees him pulling his blaster out. Yes, so he he knows he's just buying time to pull his blaster out and shoot me. So I'm just going to shoot him first. Han shoots first. I like that, and I like that they didn't say anything about nice job, you shooting first or anything like that. Yes,
0: it was it was a subtle. That was probably a good piece of storytelling. How they got to that showdown was bad. But the actual how they handled that in a more subtle way than coming right out and being back and say, you know, you should always shoot first or saying, yeah, good shot, kid. You shot first. Yeah, that was well done. So we had that last bit there where the Empress Nest lady gets to do her final like thing of, yeah, what are you going to do with this money? We're going to basically start a rebellion. yeah And then that was kind of a way to tie that movie into the wider Star Wars universe, that they're one of the cells that is a part of the Rebel Alliance and this money can help funds.
1: The Rebel Alliance. And I think that kind of falls into, again, the whole Star Wars things just fall together randomly and end up working out of Han, who has never wanted to be a part of any of this, is the guy that really started the Rebellion. I don't know if I would go that far. Funded the Rebellion. Funded the Rebellion. <laughs>
0: okay. He did the Kickstarter for the Rebellion. Right, he didn't want to right. actually be a part of it, but...
1: He had to go fund me.
0: Yes, there you go. So final Lando scene because the final thing we
1: need is Han needs to get the Millennium Falcon. Right, I really like how they did that, and they kind of played that up as like an ongoing thing between them. Of course, he wins it. Yeah, because he, he hugs
0: him because he sees the the hidden card thing up right. his sleeve and takes the, the green silop that Lando was trying to use to cheat again at the end to right. win. It's a nice touch that the way that they did that because even in Empire Strikes Back, when Lando and Han meet at investment at, at Cloud City. Hunt even says, hey, I won it fair and square. Right. And it was kind of, it seemed like he did win it fair and square, because it wasn't like he won because he had that card. He kind of like, here's my winning hand. You don't have this green silo to cheat with. Right. So he actually, although again, earlier- he would have
1: won if you'd have had this.
0: Yes. And even earlier in the movie, he did actually win fair and square, but right. Lando had cheated. So really, so. he won
1: it twice. You yeah. know, owes him another Millennium Falcon- <laughs>
0: And then the movie essentially ends where we see Han and Chewie in the Millennium Falcon going to Tatooine to work for some crime boss. who's putting together a big score, right.
1: which, of course, is a hut. So, And again, me walking out of the movie with a smile on my face, it ended because of the smile on his face as he sat. As they go into hyperspace, that look of pure joy on his face, like, I'm home. This is where I belong. Or he'd always wanted to be a pilot, have his own ship, and just be able to fly all over the galaxy and now he has it.
0: Yes. I don't like the way that we got to that point with the story. But yeah, that moment was good.
1: Let's take a look at the characters. I personally, I think everybody did a fantastic job. I think the cast was great. Han was Han. Lando was Lando. Chewie was Chewy. I really think those actors did a fantastic job of playing well-established characters
0: I feel bad saying this. I really struggled with Han, but I feel bad for the actor who was cast. Alden Ehrenreich? I think that's how you pronounce his name. Anyone who is cast to play a character that everyone equates with Harrison Ford is almost doomed from the beginning. Because Harrison Ford's acting ability and his charisma on screen just embody what you think of as Han Solo. I had problems with the story, but I really can't complain about the way that that guy acted the role of yeah. huh?
1: and everybody they woody harrelson plays that character in a lot of movies but he does it so well if you pitch a character like that i think woody harrelson is the automatic go-to
0: it's a lot easier for me to evaluate woody harrelson and amelia clark because they're not playing established star wars characters both woody harrelson and amelia clark did really good jobs with their characters i like both of them as actors Kind of dumb to say, but I'm always impressed at Amelia Clark can be in something and I don't see Khaleesi.
1: Right. She, she does a great job of separating herself.
0: She is a fantastic actress. Maybe is. sometimes she doesn't get enough credit for it, but the fact that she, and not just in this movie, I've seen her in plenty of other movies. The fact that you can believe that she is whatever character she is and that she's not typecast or seen only as the Game of Thrones chick. And almost the opposite of I really struggled with Han, I loved Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian. Fantastic. Perfect. I actually would have loved to have seen more of him, although, again, it would have been hard because it's supposed to be a Han-centric story. But Donald Glover did such a fantastic job with Lando.
1: And Paul Bettany as Dryden Voss. he did a fantastic job. He seemed like he was a crime syndicate leader. He was great. And even though her role is small... Thaddee Newton, I thought,
0: did a great job as Val. Kind of the
1: deepest character, really. She was one of the deepest
0: supporting characters that wasn't Lando, because we have expectations of that (laughs) character. So she did a really good job. She made the action sequences part of the train heist really work well. So I thought she Mm -hmm. did good. But my favorite actor, possibly my favorite actor in the movie, is the actor that we don't see on the screen. Well, actually, both. John Mero who, who voices Rio, mm-hmm. I thought he did a really good job with that. At first, I, I didn't really recognize his voice. I don't know if it was slightly modulated or, or changed a little bit. At first, I didn't recognize it as him. But yeah, he did a really good job as Rio. I thought that was very entertaining. But I was thinking more of, of L3.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: And I actually didn't recognize her at first. I had to actually look it up, that it was... Phoebe Waller-Bridge, which more people probably know her from the Amazon series Fleabag. So she's a very talented writer and actor, and she's very funny. And she did a phenomenal job with L3. I mean, she wasn't in much of the movie, but she was a scene-stealing delight. One of the other things that kind of annoyed me a little bit about the whole Kira thing was that her presence in the movie and her participation in the storyline took time away from what could have gone to other han stories we could have seen more of han and lando together we may have could have seen you know han first meeting job of the Hutt. but if you take Kira out of the movie and you take bal out of the movie it's basically space bros Because there's basically no women in the movie.
1: You don't have the motivation that he had to get You don't have the the motivation.
0: You don't have the love story. The romantic angle is gone too. And it becomes too much stereotypical of it's just all geeky boys who go to see Star Wars being played into. So I could see why they needed a a wider storyline. But for a movie that was supposed to be about Han Solo, large portions of it seemed to not be about Han Solo.
1: Yeah, I see it as a movie establishing why Han Solo is the way Han Solo is. But
0: I would argue that that is an unnecessary movie. What we see of Han Solo when we meet him in New Hope is enough to establish the character. And it goes back to, again, what I sometimes struggle with, but I now think I agree. That if you're going to make new Star Wars movies or television shows, I don't want origin story movies. I don't want more stories with the characters we already know. Stay within the universe, but give us new stories and new characters. So I can hate them for completely different reasons, but not hate them for why they do or do not tie in the way
1: I want them to to the other characters in movies and stories. For me, give me everything. I want everything. I will consume it as long as it makes me happy. And the more they make, the more I'm going to be happy. I really think if they were to go forward with this, I think they would split up Lando stories in one direction, Crimson Dawn stories in one direction, Han stories in another direction. And what I would really like to see that is actually more episodic. And maybe Whether it would be better with, for like,
0: a television series to like Star Wars Origins that had the ability to do a bunch of different right. stories. And then it didn't have to be all about one person. Because there is a lot that has to happen to Lando Calrissian from where we see him at the end of this movie and where we meet him at Empire Strikes Back. So a lot has to
1: happen in the evolution of his character. I think the Star Wars universe is suffering from the same thing that the DC universe is suffering from, where there's such strong characters and so much story to tell that when you're making the movies, you have to cram so much in them. That it's difficult to explain everything you need to explain and still stay within movie parameters. I think that's why the DC's episodic universe, TV universes, do so well, is they're able to spread those stories out the way that they should. And I think Star Wars is running into the same thing, where there's so much story to tell in, in such deep lore that they they would almost have to go into more episodic versions in order to tell the whole story. <laughs> Well, looking at audience and reception, Rotten Tomatoes is often looked at as kind of the end-all, be-all, what do people actually think about these movies. listed as a flawed yet fun and fast-paced space adventure. story could satisfy newcomers to the saga as well as longtime fans who check their expectations at the door. I think that's kind of a key thing there. Whenever you run into something Star Wars, the expectations are so high; it's almost impossible to meet those expectations, especially for people that they loved the original movies as a as a child, and it brings back such warm feelings. The overall Rotten Tomato score is seventy percent, and the audience score is sixty four percent. So generally, what a lot of people think about this movie is it's not terrible, but it's not good.
0: And again, that was my initial reaction when I saw it in theaters. Is like that wasn't bad but it also wasn't good but it also made me wonder though what was the intended audience would a non-star wars fan enjoy this movie more say for example you never seen any other star wars movie you could technically watch this movie
1: yeah, and it you, could be enjoyable.
0: Right, and, and, you, and it, you wouldn't be lost. You wouldn't be confused. It wasn't like it was, I mean, there were a lot of Star Wars references in the movie and a lot of Easter eggs, but you didn't have to know Star Wars or this character. Yeah, it's just and a
1: cool space heist.
0: Maybe that is why it worked better for some people. If you mm-hmm. came to this movie with absolutely no preconceptions about Star Wars and no knowledge of the character and... Han supposed to act like that? Is that what Lando supposed to be like? Is that how they got the Millennium Falcon and all that stuff? Maybe you could just sit back and enjoy it. I still argue it's a bad movie but again, it's impossible to separate the Star Wars fan from me and to say, right. just watch this as
1: a movie. That's what I was saying. I think also this is meant for the casual fan as well. You know, people that have seen the Star Wars movies and enjoyed them but never really dove deep into the lore. Mm-hmm because they're not really that interested. They're not as nerdy as as we are.
0: Well, one last thing for me about intended audience. It it keeps coming back to me. I've been reading a lot of Star Wars novels recently, both canon and non-canon. And those, especially the new canon novels, established characters like Han Solo and Leia and Luke Skywalker show up, but they're not the star of the story. There's a well-constructed story within the Star Wars universe where something is happening, and then one of the established characters will show up briefly for a couple of scenes, and it's delightful when they show up, because then you say, Hey, I know that character, I love that character, and they do something that's very in-character for them, and then they go off and continue doing their own thing, and we get back to the core story of Mm -hmm. whatever the book is about. And sometimes I think that that might be the only way that you can work any of the established characters into another movie or another part of the Star Wars universe. Because I think, again, for me, I obviously brought way too much of my Star Wars baggage to watching this movie, which has tainted me deeply with the dark side energy to hate this movie. And I think that maybe it would have worked better if you really wanted to open it up, like you said, to a more casual fan, make the Star Wars geekery all the Easter eggs and references, but then have some type of story that doesn't have to rely on Han, Chewie, and Lando so that people like me won't um, try to throw force lightning at it. We ran a Twitter poll to get some feedback on Solo, a Star Wars story. We offered four choices. Good Star Wars movie. Good movie. Bad Star Wars movie. Bad movie. The good definitely defeated the bad in this poll. Good Star Wars movie won with 48% of the vote, good movie with 28%, bad Star Wars movie with 20%, and bad movie with 4%. So overall, 76% of the participants in our poll thought it was either a good Star Wars movie or a good movie. Twitter user I used to watch this commented, that while they grew up on Star Wars, the original movies, they don't get bothered by the fan side of stuff. They enjoyed the movie and they thought it was fun. Twitter user Time Shifters Pod commented that it could have easily been called Rollicking Space Adventure and been the same movie, changed the names and dropped the insanely forced connections to the Star Wars mythos. Twitter user Launching the Pilot commented, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It looked like Star Wars, felt like Star Wars, and if you licked it, it would taste like Star Wars. Okay, it was a bit like Han Solo by the numbers, but I was fine with that. Thanks to everyone who participated in our Twitter poll and discussion. Let's wrap this thing up. Let's go with you first, your your final impressions and overall rating.
1: I thought it was a very enjoyable movie. As long as you set those expectations to the side and you go in just wanting an enjoyable movie. These movies, if you go into them expecting them to be like the original trilogy and give you the same feeling as the original trilogy, you're just destined to be disappointed. I enjoyed it. Overall, I give it a solid R2-D2. It was chaotic. It didn't always make sense, but it was mostly reliable. kept the story going.
0: I'm a huge Star Wars nerd. I probably brought too much of that with me when I went to see this movie. I wanted a better story. Too much was wrong with the story. Plot holes, bad storytelling. I give this movie negative 12 parsecs. This took us in the complete wrong direction. I think the Kessel run and trying to explain that whole parsec problem became the core part of the script that they wove a story around. And they didn't do a very good job with it. And I would argue if if you can't tell a better Han Solo story, just don't tell one at all. Social shout out!
1: Do you ever find yourself sitting on the couch late at night wondering, what should I watch?
2: Aimlessly flipping through streaming services, pondering as you let your cursor settle over a title, but you just can't bring yourself to commit and push play. Well, guess what? We do that. And
1: we made a podcast about it.
2: Because everybody makes podcasts, but we decided to make ours about movies. I'm Kay. I'm E.
1: And together we start a journey through cinema where we watch a movie, sit down, discuss it,
2: debate it, test each other's knowledge of it, and then give our final seal of approval or disapproval. Yeah. So join us as we try to search the infinite web, attempting to answer the age-old question What should we watch?
1: So check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and drop us a comment. Let us know what you think, and we'll have some interactive portions where you can join the fun.
2: So pop some popcorn, pop some wine, and join us, won't you? Tune in to What Should We Watch with K&E.
0: Coming at you live, brother.
2: It's not live coming at you. Pre-recorded and edited.
0: Pre-recorded edited and delivered, brother. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Fanboy and the Hater. We really appreciate it and would love to hear your feedback. Give us a rating, leave us a comment, reach out to us on Twitter at and Hater. Email us at thefanboyandthehater at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on our website, fanboyandhater.podbean.com, that's P O D B E A N, where you can download the free Podbean mobile app for iOS and Android. Find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and many more. Once again, Thanks for listening to the Fanboy and the Hater.